Chapter Twenty Eight of Tom Playfair. We're making a start by Francis J. Finn S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Twenty Eight: An Escape from Jail and the Beginning of a Snowstorm. Still Christmas morning, in a narrow room lighted by one closed barred window, was Hartnett, worn no less by confinement than by anxiety. His face had grown darker, his fierce eyes had become bloodshot, while his beard, nails, and hair, long neglected, imparted to his appearance an increase of loathsomeness. Like a caged tiger he was fiercely, doggedly pacing up and down the room. Occasionally he would pause to catch the interchange of greetings from the passers-by, without. They were merry words, words beautiful in themselves, but colored into beauty, more gracious than the dawn by the infinite peace and love that gave them birth words that brought back again the undying song of the angels, that song of gladness, which, ringing down the ages, will move the glad echoes of the human heart till this world shall have passed away. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! The words few and meaning simple. Yet, linked them with the glad smile, the bright eye, the look of love, the warm pressure of the hand, and what a wealth of meaning there is in the expression. It is the full-hearted utterance of human sympathy, kindness, and love raised into priceless value by the benediction of Bethlehem's babe. But upon the prisoner's heart, long since attuned to the chords of anger and hatred, these words grated harshly. Muttering maledictions upon the authors of these cheery greetings, he resumed his weary tramp, not blessed on this thrice-blessed day by so small a gift as one kind thought. By and by a key from without rattled in the lock. The door swung open, and the marshal entered the room. "'Well, Hartnett,' said the marshal, your game's about up. What's happened now? The boy you stabbed died this morning, so tomorrow you're to be moved to the jail at the county seat, if you're not lynched before you get there. The prisoner wiped his brow with his sleeve. His breathing grew short, and an expression of abject fear started upon his face. What do people say about me? he gasped. There's not much said. They're rather quiet, but their way of looking makes me reckon that you won't get out of this jail more than six foot before you're in the hands of a mighty mad crowd but I guess we'll come a game on them. We'll take you off tomorrow before daylight, before folks know what's what. When are you coming for me? Oh, about four in the morning. Anything I can do for you? No, I'll be ready when you come. Ain't you sorry for that boy died? No answer from Hartnett. Won't you feel nervous-like tonight with that boy's face before you in the dark? See, here now, said the murderer, don't try that on me. You needn't try to get me frightened. The boy is dead, and that's the end of it. The prisoner spoke with vehemence. Well, I can't wish you a Merry Christmas, but I do wish that you may come to realize what an awful thing you have. Go away, get out, leave me, shrieked Hartnett, his bloodshot eyes growing hideous with rage, and his fingers working in impotent passion. One moment, said the marshal, producing a pair of handcuffs. Here's a pair of bracelets you might as well try on. Now, exclaimed Hartnett aghast. Why not? Can't you wait till tomorrow? he exclaimed, drawing back. Come on, now's the time. Marshal, I haven't asked many favors since I've been here. Please let me go free till we start tomorrow. It's an ugly matter to have those affairs on, and I'd like to put it off as long as possible. Let's see, said the official dubiously. Why I can't escape, man. Look at those bare stone walls. Four ugly walls and a wretched barred window, and a dismal low roof that I can almost touch with my hand. Well, all right, said the marshal, but remember, on they go the first thing in the morning. 
I'll leave them here for you to admire. And carelessly tossing the handcuffs on the prisoner's bed, the marshal locked himself out. Had he seen the lurking smile of triumph on Hartnett's face, he might have reconsidered his favor. Hartnett listened intently till the retreating footsteps had become inaudible. Then going to his bed, he turned up the mattress, and inserting his hand into a small opening, drew forth a slender, steel, saw-like instrument. After pausing to assure himself that no one was near, he climbed up one of the stone walls of the prison, by means of hardly perceptible holes made for his feet, till his hands could reach the wooden roof. His first act was to jerk from the ceiling three strips of black cloth, which, on being removed, discovered three long, narrow chinks, plain in the sunshine, and needing only a fourth chink to make a hole abundantly large enough for his escape. The work already done had cost him days and nights of patient labor, his instrument being small and in appearance unsuited for the purpose. He put himself to work now with redoubled energy. Presently the beginning of the fourth narrow slit appeared. Half an hour passed. Hardly a quarter of an inch was done, and two feet to be cut before three o'clock of the next morning. Hartnett grew nervous at the thought, and pushed his makeshift saw up and down with all his strength. Suddenly there was a sharp snap. His instrument had broken. In the agony of the moment, Hartnett forgot himself, lost his hold, and fell heavily to the floor, where, with a smothered curse still lingering on his lips, he lay for some minutes, stunned and helpless. But the sound of footsteps without soon brought him to his feet, and with an agility wonderful under the circumstances, he again clambered up the wall, deftly covered the betraying chinks with cloth, then lightly dropped to the floor. For the rest of the day he passed his time brooding and sullen, now traversing his cell with hasty and patient strides, now tossing restlessly upon his couch. Darkness at length came, and the sound of day died away. Towards midnight, perfect quiet reigned. Hartnett's time had come. With the handcuffs in one hand, he again mounted with all his strength, beat them against the part he had partially cut away. One, two, three heavy blows, and the wood yielded a little. Another strung blow, and another, and his escape was secured. A moment later he had gained the roof, leaped to the ground, then skulked through the village, across the railroad track, out into the great undulating deserted prairie beyond. Whither he was going he knew not. But strange as it may seem, no sooner was he free of his prison walls than an overpowering sense of terror came upon him. Did he seek the lonely prairie of his own choice? That was a question he could not have answered himself. He seemed to be fleeing from some pursuing evil. It might have been the bitter wind of the chilling night, but there seemed to ring in his ears a dying groan. There seemed to dance before him a knife dripping with blood, and the wild, angry jargon of many voices haunted him as though a horde of demons were at his heels. The very sky was dark and threatening, and strange, weird shapes clad in the sable vesture of the dead sprang up at every step before his startled eyes. Hour after hour passed away, and still he pushed wildly, madly on, his face quivering with fear and horror. With the first streak of dawn, his strength thus far supported by terror deserted him, and coming upon a lone tree standing amid the vast solitude of the prairie, he threw himself beneath its shelter, and losing his nice terror in the splendor of the dawn, fell into a deep sleep. Let us turn from this wretch to the side of the dead child. His delicate, fragile hands clasped upon his bosom, and intertwined with the beads he had so loved in life. His face calm and serene, and telling a tale of beatitude immortal, he lay in his white coffin, surrounded by his father, mother, and little playmates, subdued into unwanted gentleness as they entered the chamber where death had dealt his kindliest stroke. 
It was the morning after Christmas, and James, it had been decided, was then to be buried. Not, said Mrs. Aldine, that I am tired of gazing upon the dear face of my angel boy, but because death in a house where so many boys are together would keep them in a sadness not suited to the time. Mr. Middleton, who had been James Aldine's teacher, spoke a few last words. He told the students of the child Jesus, of his hidden youth, and of his love for little children. Then he narrated, almost in the beautiful language of the gospel, the story of how Jesus, when he was asked by the apostles who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, took a child and set him in their midst. And, he continued, when I consider the little I have seen of our departed brother's life, when I recall how earnestly, how devotedly, he sought to love and imitate the sacred heart of Jesus, it seems to me that such a one as this must our divine Lord have chosen to stand in the midst of his apostles. Slowly and solemnly the students, in ordered ranks, devoutly recited the rosary as they moved, walked from the college towards the graveyard, which lay a mile or so out upon the prairie. As they neared the newly made grave, snow began to fall in large snowflakes. Before the burial service had concluded, the storm became blinding in its intensity. Mr. Morton, the prefect of the large boys, was alarmed. Boys, he said in a loud voice, as the grave diggers were completing their task, and the students were about to start for the college. I warn you on the pair of your lives not to disperse on the road back. This promises to be a terrible snowstorm, and were you to lose your way, death on the prairie might be the result. Form into ranks as before, and I will put two boys who know the prairie best at the head. It was very happy of the prefect to have taken this decisive measure. At first some of the youthful wiseacres grumbled, but when, with some difficulty, all had arrived safely at the college, it was generally acknowledged that any other course might have led to the loss of life. End of chapter 28 Recording by Maria Therese